I teach homiletics and I teach, you know, Bible in, in, in Bible college right now. And I interact with college students on a daily basis. And one thing I find in, the, in their preaching, teaching, and their writing a weakness is when they go to define a word, they will just use Webster's. You know, they'll, they'll go to, they'll just go to dictionary.com or whatever. And I would say, I would say to you, there's something we're really missing there that everybody needs to be aware of, right? You're listening to an ongoing discussion on life, leadership, and ministry. This is the Brian Sams Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Brian Sams Podcast. My name is Brian Sams and I am your host. And as always, I am joined by my friend, Aaron Chan. Hi, good to be back. Aaron, this discussion with Mark Ward has been pretty insightful, hasn't it? It's been great. I, yeah. I love I loved hearing it. I love it. And the book has been great. I don't know if you've had a chance to finish the whole thing. I, I've read the chapter that we're probably going to talk about right now is the the dead words and false friends which is it's my favorite chapter in the book i mean there's so much good here but we also want to welcome back to the podcast mark ward thanks for joining us again mark it's really a delight to fellowship with you over this topic absolutely and i I just i feel like you know you have a, a gracious spirit on this subject i also feel like that you had a rare combination in your book of scholarship as well as just, you know, you were concise in your words. I think this book is a must-read, easy-to-understand book for anybody, even on an entry-level. If you just want to have some entry-level information on this, I think this is a great place to start. So thank you for your contribution to this subject uh, in print. Yeah, I just want to serve Christ's body. It's a great delight to hear you say those things. Thank you. Yes. Hey, so we left off um, last time. We, we kind of introduced your book, and we talked about um, that we were just going to kind of highlight the chapters and let you kind of converse with me a little bit concerning the subject, frankly, of readability. And I appreciate everything so far, but I wanted to dive right in here to chapter three of the book, and here's the title, Dead Words and False Friends. So first, Mark, why don't you tell us what you mean by dead words and false friends, and then let's start with dead words in a little discussion. Yeah, dead words is pretty easy for everybody to understand. I think anybody who picks up the King James Version and comes across the word besom or the word chambering or the word emerald, those are kind of my standard examples, they're going to know, I don't know this word. And it isn't much of a stretch to say, okay, well, given all the values that we have in having a common standard Bible translation, you need to just do a little work and use the dictionary. I do wonder how many people actually have ever looked up in the English dictionary the word firmament, and it's just on page one. I don't know that people are actually using their dictionaries. I also wonder if people realize how complicated this is, and actually that to use the right dictionary, you've got to somehow get a hold of the expensive and massive Oxford English dictionary, which is the only one that actually tracks all English words throughout their entire history. That's another matter. Uh, but I, I think that dead words is pretty, you know, the, the concept is easy to understand. There's are words that we don't use anymore, and they're still in the King James Version. Not because... Yeah, Mark... Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, Mark. I cut you off there. There's a real challenge here. I teach I teach homiletics, and I teach, you know, Bible in, in, in Bible college right now. And I interact with college students on a daily basis and one thing I find in the in their preaching teaching and their writing a weakness is when they go to define a word 
they will just use Webster's. You know, they'll they'll go to they'll just go to dictionary.com or whatever. And I would say I would say to you, there's something we're really missing there that everybody needs to be aware of, right? Most definitely, a dictionary's job, like Webster's, like the American Heritage Dictionary, a contemporary dictionary's job is to describe the language as it is now. Only the Oxford English Dictionary, which is, again, massive and expensive. I use it just about every day. I use it through my local library online. Um, it tracks the history, uh, the entire history of English words. And words can not, o- it's not only words that can drop out of language and come in, uh, it's also senses of given words. And that's what gives us false friends and why it's particularly important that people understand the role the Oxford English Dictionary has to play for anybody who's going to be a really serious student of the King James Bible. Um, there are words in the King James Version that we still use, but that in those contexts meant something different in 1611. And because the meaning is similar enough, we today don't realize that we're misunderstanding. So you can't say to those about the false friends, you can't say, well, just go use a dictionary because people won't even know that they're misunderstanding. They won't know to look them up. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I'm actually skipping ahead to page 62 of your book where uh, you quote David Kleins, an Old Testament expert, and says, as with Shakespeare, a commentator should look up the OED, Oxford English Dictionary, for every word in the King James. And then you made this comment, regular Bible readers could feasibly do this too, but this is a rather generous definition of feasibility. Normally, translations are provided so that people don't have to look up words. So in a real sense, Mark, what we're saying is in order to maintain a King James only position forever, there is virtually no way you're going to be able to read it, understand it, accurately define words unless you have this big giant Oxford dictionary beside of you. And what people do that in any other context? Right. Yeah, I, I know how people who read and love the King James are feeling right now. Um, they're feeling exactly the way I did when I was a teenager and a young adult. They're thinking, wow, you are way overblowing the problems here. Obviously, I can read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believed in him should not perish, etc. But what about that very verse? The word should is used in a way there that we just don't use that word. Are people understanding it? Do they know how to look it up? I, I have discovered over years of obsessive compulsive love of English and the Bible that there were far more words that I was misunderstanding than I realized. So I'm not standing up on Mount Olympus telling everybody else out there to get smart like me. I'm telling them I'm in the trenches with you just trying to understand the Bible. And these dead words and false mm. friends are tripping me up still to this day. There's more of them in there than you think. That's my message to people who love the King James. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think that it's important. I was just preaching last week, and I had to make this statement to my church on a word as simple as the word conversation, which, of course, you know, generally means lifestyle in the New Testament and Paul's writings. And I just said, I just warned the church, see, guys, here is a word that if you just read it, you may think this is about a dialogue between two people. But it's about a lifestyle. That's the way that Paul used it, and that's the way that's what the word referred to in you know, when the King James Bible was translated. 
And then I made this additional comment. I said, guys, it's not the word that you don't know to look up that is what's dangerous. I mean, everybody knows that you probably don't know what concupiscence is unless you've looked it up before. But what we all, that shouldn't scare us near as much as what you call in your book, false friends. So why don't you, why don't you dive into false friends there and, and explain what exactly you mean by that and maybe give us an example or two. I use this terminology. I did not invent it. I borrowed it and adapted it. So in linguistics, false friends generally means words in two different languages that either look or sound similar and therefore cause people to think they must be related, but they aren't. I think that Elizabethan English and contemporary English, obviously they're not different languages, but they can usefully be regarded as different languages. And here's what I mean. They're, they're like the Venn diagram, the circles that overlap. There's a lot of overlap. Yes, I can. most of the King James is intelligible. Um, but there are places where the languages do not overlap. And that causes dead words and false friends. And it's not just words, it's punctuation marks, it's even typographical symbols and, and practices. Um, but my classic example of a false friend is what happened to uh, this. This is my story of kind of realizing this category of words existed. I already knew about dead words. How can you not? But I was reading the story of Elijah in first Kings 18, and I was writing a Bible lesson for eighth graders. I was a Bible textbook author at the time, and I had to check multiple translations because our readers used multiple translations in their Christian schools, but the King James was our default. And I was reading in the ESV, and um, in that passage that I'd heard and memorized growing up, where you know uh, Elijah gives the stirring word, "How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, then follow Him; but if Baal, then follow Him." Um, the ESV said, "How long will you go limping between two opinions?" And I thought, "That's not right." <laughs> you know, the King James translators—they're—they're they're not dummies. They wouldn't have gotten it this wrong. It can't be halt and limp, you know, halt means stop. How long will you stop between these two opinions? Or how long will you waver or vacillate? Um, but then I thought, well, I know Hebrew, I'll check the Hebrew. So I checked the Hebrew in my Bible software. And sure enough, the word means limp. And then I suddenly realized, duh, in the New Testament, in the King James Version, Jesus heals the halt and the blind. And in Genesis, I think 32, Jacob, after wrestling with uh, God uh, is touched on his thigh and he comes away halting. I realized then that the King James translators chose a word that back in 1611 meant limp. But today, because we don't use it to mean that anymore, we use it to mean stop, like traffic ground to a halt or halt who goes there. Um, we misunderstand necessarily. It's a false friend. And once mm. I was armed with this label and this concept, I started to see this all over the place and i started to be concerned enough to write a book there you go well i think your chapter does such a fantastic job of giving multiple examples of false friends and i would highly recommend anybody uh to uh to go to that chapter after you've read obviously after you've read the rest of it and really really look at those sound examples that you gave i think it's just um i think you did a great job with that so uh I, I want to point out just one other one, Mark, that I actually ran into uh, just last week. Uh, I am preaching through the book of First Timothy right now, and I preached last week on widow care. 
And in First Timothy chapter five verse four, um, the um, the King James, I believe, is if a if a widow has children or nephews. And of course, today nephew is you know the child, the male child of your brother or sister. Um, and yet, in virtually every modern translation that I've taken the time to look up, as well as look up the actual word itself in Greek. Uh, it is grandchildren. Um, and so I just that's just another one. If you didn't know that nephew could possibly be something different, because in your context it has a different meaning, it's just a challenge to even know that you even need to look the word up. And that's why there's a real challenge here. Um, right. I think that's a great point. I, hey, I love what you did with Chapter 4, too. In Chapter 4, you, you asked the question, what is the reading level of the, K, of the KJV? And... And this is, you hear this all the time, you know, hey, brother, listen, the King James is in a, it's only in an eighth grade reading level and, and the ESV or something is in a 10th grade reading level. Why don't you share just real quickly on why even that statement is problematic? And I just love how you laid this out in the chapter. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with this one. I remember seeing that and thinking, you know what? I just know they're wrong, but I don't know how, how to prove it because I didn't understand how readability analyses work. So I sat down and did the homework that I regret to say my King James-only brothers have not done. If they had, then they wouldn't use this argument. And I would, act, I would actually like somebody out there to just apologize and say, I'm sorry, this argument doesn't work. It's really straightforward. Here's how it is. The flesh Kincaid readability analysis that comes standard in WordPerfect, and uh, you can easily get it online, all it does to measure the readability of a text is count the length of words and the length of sentences. And they use that as a rough and ready guide to the you know difficulty level of a text. And is that a rough and ready guide? Well, yes, it is. But does it work on antiquated language? And the answer simply is no, it wasn't designed to do that. You could use nonsense syllables, and as long as you keep your sentences short and your nonsense syllable words short, then the flesh Kincaid readability analysis will spit out a third grade reading level. But obviously, nonsense syllables aren't at any reading level. They're, uh, that it's, it's, you're using the tool on something it wasn't designed to work on. And right. that's what is going on when, you're, when you use this supposedly neutral, you know, uh, ob objective, computerized readability test on the King James Version. It simply wasn't designed to tell us how readable um, Shakespeare or um, other archaic texts are. So I just wanted to kind of clear that out of the way and show and, and free people up to just say, you know, the best measure of readability is readers. And in all honesty, we've got to be able to admit we didn't know that nephews meant grandson. We didn't know that halt meant limp. Uh, we don't know these dead words. You know, at what point can we acknowledge to ourselves that the number of readability difficulties is sufficient to cause us to need to make some kind of change, a revision or pick up the New King James Version? Um, I, I want to free people to... to, to uh, to follow their consciences here. I, I just feel like you can't not know that there right. are unnecessary difficulties in the King James Version. Yeah, to me, that's where it came down to, Mark. I mean, obviously, anybody listening to this would know by now that obviously I have made some adjustments in my thinking 
Uh, some people would call them cataclysmic adjustments. I, I really feel, Mark, that as I have been a formal student of the Bible since, my goodness, 1997 and am about to finish up my, my doctorate in biblical studies, I just feel that I have been exposed to a number, tons of information. And, you know, when it comes to convictions and when it comes to what you embrace— the very starting point is honesty and humility before truth. If, you, if you're not willing to be honest and humble before truth, then you really cannot even form true convictions. All you're doing is chasing someone else's. And I think for me, I had to come to a place where there were multiple things regarding the translation issue that that I had to finally be honest enough, at least with myself. I'm not even suggesting that other folks aren't being dishonest. What I'm saying is hopefully when you expose yourself to a book like this or a podcast like this or another solid piece of literature, maybe by Carson or somebody else, you would, you would come to the conclusion that maybe I need to take a better honest look at this. Do you think that's a fair, a fair request to give to somebody? Sure. Now, I've tried to be really careful thinking through this. Do I want to say that my opponents, you know, in this debate, in the King James-only debate, that they're being dishonest? Um, I'll observe that a number of them have said that about me, that they've said I'm a liar. And uh, I know I'm not a liar. Before God, I am telling the truth, and I am a sincere seeker after truth, and God saved me from believing a single lie. But I want to be very careful with the consciences of people who've been told their entire lives, perhaps, that um, the King James Version is the only acceptable English version. Um, and they've been told that by people who they have good reason to trust. These are their pastors. These are people who have shown real godliness and shepherdly concern. They've been evangelistic and they've showed lives of holiness. I'm not going to tell people like that, you should distrust your pastor. No, I think they should trust their pastor. But the one, the one thing that makes me feel confident that I must try to shake somebody out of um, uh, something that's binding their conscience, you know, despite uh, the Bible's clear warnings here, you really want to be careful not being, to be a stumbling block to someone on matters of conscience, which I fully believe, is that the Bible itself says in 1 Corinthians 14 that edification requires intelligibility. I don't want to argue about textual criticism, and I refuse to argue about it with people who insist on the exclusive use of the King James Version, because I don't think the Bible teaches anywhere nearly as clearly on that matter as it does on this. Edification requires intelligibility. And I feel safe taking a beloved brother by the shoulders and saying, Brother, you have to admit... You have to admit that the King James Version is not fully intelligible. You yourselves are telling me, don't be lazy, go get a dictionary. And I'm saying, you're proving my point. If you need a dictionary to read the word broom, the word immorality, the word uh, tumor, um, and of course I've used this in the, in the King James before, it's besom, chambering, and emerald. If you need a dictionary, then these words are not intelligible, and therefore you're not going to be edified by them. 
Um, that's the one place where I'm willing to question, yes, the honesty of my brothers. I think at some level of their consciences, they, they do recognize there are unnecessary difficulties in the King James Version, or we wouldn't have these long books full of um, dead words and false friends that they themselves have come out with, the Trinitarian Bible Society and, the, and D.A. Waite and his defined King James Bible. I feel like every single word on that list is just proving my point. First of all, I want to say that answer right there, I think, was one of the most helpful answers that I've heard. And that is sometimes I think getting tangled up in the weeds of textual criticism may be one of Satan's greatest tactics to divide. Uh, and I think that can we just not answer the simple question, which, which actually brings me to a question, because part of this episode, we wanted to ask some questions that are difficult to answer. You've you just asked one of yours doesn't 1 Corinthians 14 uh, teach us that intelligibility and edification is necessary? And, and of course, we've come to the conclusion, yes. Um, I would also say my, a question I've always had, Mark, for, for King James-only people is, let's just say all things are equal with textual criticism. Okay, let's just not even talk about that. Why do we not see these proponents accepting modern translations from their particular text. Oh, and, and even if we leveled that, would they be willing to accept a modern translation from the received text, as they call it? Do you, I mean, that's a fair question that's hard to answer, isn't it? Yeah, I've really been pressing on that question both in my book and in private conversations and in some semi-public conversations on my blog and on Facebook. And uh, here again, I do not want to say that my brothers in Christ are being dishonest, that what they really, that they really know in their heart of hearts that they're not willing to part with the King James Version. And so all of their objections to the new King James Version, which uses the same, you know, Greek and Hebrew texts that they're actually lies. I will not say that. I don't think that. I want to treat my brothers as um, speaking with sincerity. However, when I have dug into their objections to the new King James Version, I frequently found that they are frustratingly simplistic um, and uh, boy, the word that comes to my mind is empty. There's there's one kind of exception to that. Chuck Surrett, an ambassador of Baptist College, he really did his homework. Um, and I really honored and admired that, even though I came to a different conclusion. I interacted with him in an article. But he's the only one who's done that level of homework. Most everybody I hear just dismisses the New King James Version and, and, and says, well, it's based on the critical text. And I say, no, it isn't. It's... The, the, the preface says that it's not. And they say, oh, well, I don't really need to, you know, give time to that because I'm happy with the King James Version. And I'm saying 1 Corinthians 14 says you shouldn't be happy with the situation no, that, that is a in great which point. your edification yeah. is being hurt by, by unintelligible words. I, I got down to this very question when I was in collegiate work and, of course, working, wrestling through this issue with college students who, A, have Internet, have blogs, have podcasts and B, are not only listening to people within the independent Baptist movement, which has been the movement I've been a part of for a number of years. And they were starting to ask questions about the more modern modern English version, and which comes from the received text. And I remember having these discussions in high-level meetings, and I remember that was the very same conclusion. 
well, that may be that may be the case, but we're just not changing. And I think what I'd like to what I'd like to see in some honesty, instead of trying to be critical toward people who are allowing themselves to read the modern English version, or even dare I say, preach from the modern English version or the New King James, which is probably what I will do if I make a change. My question is, can't we just say that and be a little bit more charitable? In other words, I'd be fine with a pastor friend who just says, you know what, I'm just sticking to the King James. I recognize that there might be some other ones, and you guys may feel free to use them. But my experience has been that is rarely the case. If I say I'm going to use the modern English version, I am unfortunately going to get labeled as somebody that has now found himself outside of the bounds of orthodoxy. Yes, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And one of them is those who sow discord among brothers. And I mentioned earlier, Galatians 5.19, works of the flesh include multiple, I think five by my count at least, which basically boil down to causing division or strife or sectarianism. There is absolutely no biblical justification for dividing from other brothers over using alternative English Bible translations of the very same Greek and Hebrew texts that you say you prefer. So at the very least here, we ought to have a situation where we accord brothers liberty to use the New King James Version or the Modern English Version. Now, I personally am fine with a critical text, but I would, I'm totally fine with a brother who prefers the TR as long as he's not ca causing division over it. There's no way that I would distance myself from someone who uses the New King James Version or the Modern English Version. I want to have all the unity I can have with other brothers who believe the truth. And let me say, as somebody who has also been in the Independent Fundamental Baptist Movement pretty much my entire life, certainly my entire adult life, um, there aren't that many of us. <laughs> and I actually really care about worldliness and about personal holiness um, some, and, and yes, proper biblical separation um, in a way that isn't common in American Christianity. And it pains me to see my fellow independent fundamental Baptists who are dividing our movement, who have divided it over the last 40 years. It's, it's sure. pretty much irrevocably divided, in my opinion. Oh, um, absolutely. Fractured, and mainly over this question. It, it isn't right. It is sin to divide over something that the Bible does not teach. That's exactly right. And I think the scary thing is the way the movement has been set up is that you can disagree on just about anything with some reasonableness of charity. I mean, there, there's, there's extreme people that, you know, have positions like a woman can't wear pants or something off there in, in a very, very narrow sect. But among the, what I would call maybe just the general public of the independent Baptist movement, the truth is you can have some latitude, but in this one area, if you don't have that, um, it's gonna you, you're you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna face resistance, and I can speak that personally. I I've experienced that personally as someone who would have basically been kind of an insider uh, in 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 the strong part of the IFB movement. So, and that's fine. I'm not that's not a big deal to me. It's just a reality that I wish that we could be honest about. And I think until we can be honest about that, um, it's gonna, the unity that I believe God would want among conservative churches is going to be hard to come by. 
Not to mention, if you broaden that, if you broaden this subject beyond the borders of IFB, which of course I do, because I know that I've got brothers and sisters in Christ that I will work with that are Southern Baptists or evangelical in general, um, that I would never separate over because they're Bible-believing and they believe in Jesus Christ and they fulfill the the qualifications of being an Orthodox Bible believer according to Scripture. Once you spill out into that world, the King James-only movement is an incredibly narrow movement that isn't there something to be said there about do we really think that there's a, there's this ultra-small margin of people that are right and everybody else is absolutely wrong, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that... Uh, my heart just hurts because I really, really love the people that shape me in the King James only world. I'm not making this up. My heart is full of love and gratitude toward them. I don't want to divide from them or them from me. And one of the, uh, one of the most important ways that I think that, um, people can and should, you know, move out of a sectarian King James only position. They don't even have to stop using the King James in their ministry, but stop dividing over it. I think one of the most important things for them to do is pick up a book by D.A. Carson or Vern Poitras or John Frame or any of countless people that I can point them to. Read the book. Tell me that book did not help you, did not bless and encourage and teach you. Tell me that this person is living in sin because they worked on the New International Version or the English Standard Version. I think if they would actually um, just go out there on the internet, even just listen to some sermons and some lectures from these gifted men, some of the best of the conservative evangelical movement, they'd have to acknowledge, yeah, okay, they've got something. They've got something that Christ has given them to give back to Christ's body. And And when I grew up, yeah, there was this idea in the air in my independent fundamental Baptist King James only church, that's, you know, the pastor was and is, you know, speaking at major institutions in the King James only world. Um, there was this idea that we pretty much have the truth and other people don't. And I think that you hit on something, Brian, earlier that, you know, now that the internet has made it impossible to avoid the existence of other dear conservative Christians, I have to think that that attitude is being eroded. When I get benefit from another Christian preacher, in a way, I don't care where he comes from. Yeah, I have to be concerned with, you know, can I link up with him formally? Would I give him money? I don't know. But will I listen to him when he benefits me? Yes. And I think that is going over time to erode the insularity of the King James only movement. That's a great point. In fact, I'm going to kind of wrap things up there, Mark. I w- let me just mention the last two chapters of your book. Chapter five is called The Value of the, the, of the Vernacular. I think we have well talked about that. Basically, the value of having a Bible that people can understand. Uh, on page 63, you say this, I quote, It is indeed the Great Commission that most clearly demands vernacular Bible translation. And that's, I think that's just a great statement. In other words, if we are going to engage a post-Christian society, a non-Elizabethan society with the gospel, we're going we're gonna to run into some bumps along the way of trying to evangelize people when, frankly, they don't understand the most important book uh, in, the, in the world. So I think that's a, that was a tremendous chapter. And then I'm just going to refer to this one because it's, it, we could spend a whole episode on this, but you cover in Chapter 6 10 Objectives to Reading Vernacular Bible Translations, and they're very well said, and I'll leave it to the readers to read that. Um, 
Mark, I, I really appreciate your time. We're kind of running out of time here, but is there maybe one final challenge or question you'd like to propose to us before we sign off here? Yeah, actually, I, I feel like over time since I've released my book, it's been about two years now, um, the last of the 10 objections that I handle in that chapter, Answering Objections, uh, was actually given to me by my pastor, who is on the same page with me, but maybe in a different paragraph on that page, and I love and respect him so much. Um, he preached from the King James Version for many years until about three years ago, and we switched over to a contemporary English translation at my church after I'd been there about a year, year and a half. Um, and he wasn't as concerned about the readability problems as I was um, because he was so steeped in the Puritans. He, he just lives in that world. He's a fantastic reader, fantastic preacher. I, I love to serve with him. None of this is to show disrespect or even disagreement with him. Uh, he was just coming from a somewhat different place. And he just said to me, you know, I read your book and um, I agree with it, but at times I felt like you're overblowing it. You know, it's, it, I, I might come away from this book thinking, oh, I can't read the King James at all. So I tried to handle that objection uh, as fairly and honestly as I could, because I felt like this is the very best objection to my book. And here, here's how I'd put it. I think people could say to me, your smoke detector is too sensitive. The alarm is going off before there's enough smoke in the air to justify it. You know, this is just burnt toast. The, the oven is not actually on fire. <laughs> and I would say, okay, brothers and sisters out there in podcast land, I, I do want to agree to disagree over this. And I want this to be the place where we are disagreeing what is the appropriate amount of smoke to indicate that there's a fire here? When do we pass over from being sufficiently intelligible to being um, insufficiently intelligible? I want that to be the discussion. I'm willing to agree to disagree with my brothers and sisters in Christ out there, but I want, I want them out there to acknowledge the Bible principle. Edification requires intelligibility. And for their own health, and to encourage them not to divide from other Christians, I want them to come face to face with the dead words and false friends uh, so that we can have an intelligent discussion about intelligibility. That's what I think I'd like to leave people with, that biblical principle applied to the King James. Mark, thank you again for being with us. I'm going to uh, bring this episode to a conclusion. I want to say as we conclude that in the next episode or two, we're going to continue this conversation. I want to thank Mark for helping us open this dialogue up. Uh, the next episode, I'm going to come back on here with Aaron, who has done an exuberant amount of research in this subject for his own good, and we're going to propose some deeper questions uh, to challenge our thinking. And then I'm going to invite uh, any of our friends out there that hold to that King James-only position that would like to have a healthy discussion uh, before our uh, audience, we want to welcome you to uh, the podcast as well because we want to be fair. We want to be fair to you. and want to be fair that we're representing you well. But uh, this is the Brian Sams Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us. As always, you can go to briansams.com for the show notes. The links to Mark's book as well as the other books he referenced in this episode will be there for you to go out and purchase. Until next time, God bless you guys. Have a great day.